everybody welcome to this week's left reckoning hope that you are enjoying a little bit of vacation for thanksgiving i'm really excited to be having um a return guest to left reckoning and i'm happy that matt is here uh, with us as all as well uh right now we have lillian chichurchia uh, who's a postdoc at the free university of berlin and the co-host of the phenomenal uh podcast uh, what's left of philosophy how's it going good thanks guys for having me yeah excited I'm, to talk with you yeah I, i'm really happy to have you back on and the first uh, episode uh, we did together um was on left populism and i think it was actually a really interesting conversation it was funny to see it sort of pop up on a few other shows almost immediately after that i know uh, as soon as we talked about it people were like oh this post-marxism thing seems like it's kind of weird and making the rounds um so yeah i <laughs> talked to the guys at this is revolution about that too i think which was a really fun uh, a really <laughs> great conversation and honestly like it's worth going into the post-marxism and and the uh, the left populism stuff because I don't know, even if it might not be the dominant like intellectual strain of the forces that we're fighting against, it sort of reveals a certain way of thinking of the world that I don't think we've sort of, we've, we haven't exited that time yet. Yeah, it's coming back. Um, um, it comes back in my little corner of the world too. I mean, just recently I was like at a workshop and people, um, you know, draw on the idea of like the multitude and, the, you know, the kind of aversion to class politics pushes people, you know, it's like I'm interested in capitalism again. I might even be interested in socialism, but I don't want to do like the bad Marxism stuff. And this seems like the softer version of it that you mm -hmm. can kind of get into. So I think it's still out there. Yeah. And, yeah. And especially like, especially like this kind of fear of, I don't know, certainty right or any any kind of concept of like totality right is like a very funny um i don't know it, it makes a certain kind of thinker skittish um but i mean on that on that i mean we wanted we brought you on today because you had a really interesting piece in uh, jackman magazine um that came out recently um on axel honneth's uh, uh new book um the, the title of the piece is called no marxism isn't economic determinism and i highly suggest uh, people spend the time uh, to read this piece, especially I know a lot of people listening to this show, you know, are very interested in philosophy or in graduate programs themselves. Um, so you will definitely get a lot out of it. But we want to talk a little bit about, I don't know, some of the general criticisms that Axel Honneth is sort of making about Marxism, um, specifically about this kind of concept of economic determinism, I don't know, to sort of prepare us and enrich our kind of understanding of Marxism um, you know, in socialist theory as we're trying to build political movements. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the first one, first things first, would you say that Marxism is economic determinism? Um, <laughs> I didn't come up with that title, just yeah. so you know. Um, they don't let you. So I think no, not in the sense that people usually think, but I think that maybe as the conversation progresses, we can talk about why there is some determinism in Marxism, mm -hmm. but it's a totally reasonable kind like in the sense that like there are structures in the world that place constraints upon us that we can't change as individuals and all of the incentives that um, motivate people within those structures are against our emancipatory interests mm -hmm. and in that sense like if it wasn't in some way like if the social if social structures weren't in some way determining our actions then we could just change them right away and do what we want but we can't do what we want so like yes it is a kind it's a way of understanding constraint and that implies some kind of determinism but 
people seem to mean something else by that. Um, and um, I, I'm always a little curious about what they they think they mean, mm-hmm. but they seem to mean like structure economic structures um, totally limit all of your behavior, that you don't have any agency, that there's nothing outside of the economic. And they, they seem to think something much more extreme than what I think. And so what I tried to say in um, the article and what I, I try to communicate is that determinism is like not that inflated of a, a concept. It actually just means that there are things that are more and less possible given what a social structure is like. No, I mean, just like on that, like, you know, the the, the ending of the Communist Manifesto, Marxist you know, famous pieces like Workers of the World Unite, you know, you have nothing to lose but your chains, right? Which is a sort of a, of a challenge as much as a prediction. And I think a lot of people sort of expected that I mean, like when it comes to like Marx and Marxism, like, you know, a, a charge is made against him and his theories that like, well, if he was right, we should be living in communism today. Right. And the fact that that we aren't means that he was sort of wrong about everything because Marx was sort of making these like I'm predicting the future right now. Here's what's going to happen. Um, but you're sort of saying that there's a lot of different factors that sort of determine history Um And some of them play a very, very large role, particularly the way that we sort of organize ourselves economically and our social relations. Yeah, I mean, there are things that are constraining our ability to solve our own problems, you know, and that doesn't mean that we can't solve our problems, but it doesn't mean that we can solve them however we want and with Mm -hmm. whatever resources we want. You know, that's the other part, the other, you know, famous Marx quote is that, you know, men make history, um, and then there's some other part I forgot. Sorry, but it's like they don't make history under the conditions. The of conditions their, of their own choosing, yeah. Their own choosing, and like I just think that that's a, a really simple way to put it. You know, we don't choose the way that we're trying to act and the the things we're facing in the world, but we do try to change them. And in some ways, we succeed more or less, and um, we force structures and people in power to react to our movements and the pressure we place on them. And so like we do change the structures, but you know, if you could go from now to communism, I think that it's the critics. I mean, I just don't think that's a real criticism of of Marxism. Like the communist Mm -hmm. manifesto is a, is a very theoretically rich piece, but it's also a political manifesto. He Mm -hmm. was like optimistic and it was a call to arms and like bringing the good tidings of socialism to the people. You know, it's not like, there's a lot of other things he says that isn't, you know, he's not like that voluntaristic. So Mark interpretation, but um, I think you have to kind of like take people's intentions with a, a grain of salt um, when you read texts like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of this conversation, um, you know, and I'm not super familiar with Hanif at all, but um, in terms of the general conversation about, is it economic determinism? It reminds me of like kind of my early exposure to Marxism and, before I sort of had an awareness of his political and sort of analytic and commentary on history, that you could you get this impression of Marxism that it's a science, it's very heavy theory that's hard to understand, and like it removes enchantment from the world, and like it it almost sort of speaks to you in a place of like these adolescent debates or our college level uh, debates about is does free will exist uh, something like that and like if you if, if Marx wants to take my free will away from me like that's that feels like kind of the level a lot of this is operating on I think people feel like so the way I think you're right 
it's it's similar to the free will debate. The way I think it gets articulated now is like you're taking away people's agency. And there seems to be this like moral imperative to retain our focus on the fact that people are agents, that they have control over their destinies, that they're not just passive actors. And I think that this is like pretty important um, you know, given the history of a lot of scholarship treating subordinated classes like they weren't the agents of history. But the irony of all, the, all of this is that Marxism and Marx himself was like, this was the first mainstream tradition in like political thought and political movements that said that the oppressed were the agents of history. And so it's kind of ironic that like in the neoliberal period, Marxists are the ones accused are who are accused of taking away people's agency because they acknowledge constraints on it. Um, but there's only so much agency as there is in the world, which is kind of one way of summarizing what I was saying before is like, you can only do as many things as you can do. And it's not Marxists who are taking away your agency. It's oppression that is taking away your agency. That's the, that's the problem. Um, if that helps. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I just wanted to share this this bit of the text when we're talking about, you know, agency and individualism. Um, you know, again, so we're sort of using this as a springboard. Um, people should, uh, you know, read the entire uh, essay to sort of get, you know, the specific points um, when it comes to Hanif's work. But this point about individualism, I think, is very critical when we're talking about agency and like how Marxism is deterministic, etc. Um, I'll read um, the trouble for critical theory, however, is that Marxism is still the only serious continue, uh, contender for an alternative social theory to various sorts of individualism. Uh, Hanath concedes that what Marx got right was a theory of history that shifted critique decisively away from seeing society as a macrocosm of the individual psyche. Other traditions like liberalism's classical republicanism or psychoanalysis tend to see social transformations as the byproducts of individuals' attempts to free themselves from the internal um, heteronomy of their desires. Whether one is struggling against an unfree will, arbitrary law, or the Oedipus complex, the fundamental drive is for autonomy. By contrast, Marx upholds a view of social freedom where groups educate themselves through struggle to expand the absolute scope of freedom for all individuals. Mm. Um, I think that like this really does hit at, at something that I think is important. I'd love to you know hear you articulate a little bit more on this, about this kind of distinction between you know philosophies of you know, individualisms and, and social philosophies when it comes to things like agency and, and, and political and social change. Um, so the, what I was drawing on there is just, there are different f ideas of the reasons people engage in social conflict. Mm -hmm. And like the other traditions I mentioned, psychoanalysis or republicanism, class, the classical kind, not the Republican party, um, small art Republicans. Um, and, liberalism, they tend to see like that there's this fundamental drive within individuals that's kind of, that wants to free themselves from um, kind of external constraints on them on themselves as persons. And the idea is to kind of get free of all constraints regardless of um, their nature. Like that's our, our drive. We want to have liberty is one way of putting it. We don't want anyone mm -hmm. telling us what to do. We don't want, you know, um, interference from the government and our decisions. And this is how we're going to measure freedom is just not being um, messed with. I was going to say, I, I put that differently, but like we just want to be left alone. It's the freedom mm -hmm. to be left alone. Um, and I think Marxists just think about freedom really differently. We think that 
in order for individuals to be free, they have to live in a free society. And in order to live in a free society, you have to do things to both attain freedom, which means that everyone has to like develop capacities to maintain and to expand the scope of freedom beyond what exists for the privileged few. Um, and that means that like you have to do things to collaborate and that as individuals, your freedom is going to be a part of the freedom of a whole. But what we're talking about isn't just that you're going to be interfered with by a group or by the government. It's that it actually gets bigger. Freedom becomes a much broader scope yeah. um, of human flourishing than is the more narrow idea of just being left alone. Um, we want to create meaning. We want to have um, our like our existential needs met. We want to be able to like not have our um, desires for like art and beauty and human connection be dictated by arbitrary forces that are, um, you know, they're leaving us alone, sure, but we also don't have any control over them. So it's just kind of a different way of thinking about what human life is for and what it means to live in a good society. And it's a different way of thinking about social social change. Like mm -hmm. the one way of thinking about it is that what we need to do is just as individuals struggle to get people to leave us alone. And then the other one is we want to be able to live in a society that flourishes. Um, and I think that, you know, people who are not open to socialism usually see that as like the collective superseding the individual. But what Marxists think is that the freedom of the collective is necessary for the freedom of the individual. I mean, I, the way that you phrase, I don't know, there's Jefferson Davis, the you know, president of the Confederacy, like famously had a, a line, and I can't remember what the context was, but it was, I think it was in a letter or something um, to, to the US, to, to Congress. It's like, I think in his resignation speech, actually, uh, when he resigned from the, the Senate and then went on to become the president of the Confederacy, he said, all we wish is to be left alone. Right. And phrase yeah. this thing about like, you know, personal freedom, when, of course, what he meant by being left alone was like, no, we need to continue being allowed to subjugate and own people. Right. So it's like, you know, these kind of the conception of individual freedom, can, I don't know, it can sort of run up against, uh, you know, it, it runs up against society in sort of unfortunate ways. And I think in, in, in more ways than a lot of the people who sort of promote it as like a isolated value um, would care to admit. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of these traditions have very slippery histories, yeah? Like, republicanism is obviously compatible with slavery, so is um, liberalism. And, you know, Marxism isn't without its its faults. Like, there are repressive, like, um, socialist regimes. And so you have to, you know, weigh them. But it's not like there's this fundamental asymmetry where, like, what's mm. obvious is that one group of people is supporting liberty and the other one is supporting um, crushing the individual within the collective. Actually, these are there are different paradigms of thinking about freedom. And if you're interested in socialism, um, like it's worth saying that these there are actually there's a balance sheet here and there are pri moral priorities. And you can think about, you know, how you want to articulate yours. Like maybe you have a liberal idea of socialism. Maybe it's a Republican idea. So that's fine. These are some of these ideas are compatible. But it's not an antagonism between individuals and the group or individuals and the state. You're actually always positing a theory of how you think the social whole should be. 
And a lot of the time when people say, I just want individual liberty, they're actually presupposing a social structure that doesn't care about that at all. You actually just want liberty for a ruling class or a ruling group or whatever. Um, so yeah, these are, they're just different ideas of, of freedom and it's not obvious. It shouldn't be obvious to people who are interested in socialist politics that um, one side, that there's a, a contrast between the group and the individual, and that's the end of the story. That's actually not what Marxists defend. We are pro-individual freedom. We just see it in a different context, in a different light. Yeah, I mean, for me, these conversations are always easy to win with my relatives who are all basically like German um, uh, immigrants yeah. to that homesteaded. It's like, we weren't given these homesteads as individuals, guys. Like all this sort of individualism we get to experience like a few generations later was because the government's like, we need some uh, white peasants to go hold down that land from the Lakota and Dakota, right? And that that led to a lot of individualism um, for folks like us. We can drive jet skis on the Missouri River now, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is a kind of uniquely American debate, you know, like, I mean, it's a it's a theoretical debate, but Americans really feel like these things are incompatible in a way I think other places just don't. I mean, if there's one thing Americans have in common, it's like people hate their government, they don't think it can do anything good for them. And if that's basically your experience of the state and of government for really different reasons, then um it does seem like you are talking about a zero-sum game, but it's a different thing to say, I want to expand our capacities to meet people's needs. Absolutely. We're not having a, a trade-off here. We are growing our capacities to flourish as a society, um, and we're going to become more free as a result. That's going to make you see something like, you know, how to um, develop a welfare state or social democracy in a really different light, I think. And it's probably more similar to what other places in the world have that don't see their state as like a parasite that's trying to, you know, eat them alive or something. Yeah. So there's, there's a, let me bring up this piece of the text and, and, and see if you could help people who might not be familiar with these concepts sort of understand what the debate is here. Um, because I think that these, this gets into a, a, another bit that is, I think is also really crucial for, socialists, I think, across all countries and cultures to understand, but particularly in the United States, where we are sort of having, I don't know, debates about his, how we view history, how we view ideology, how we view identity, um, you know, as to why certain structures exist, right? Um, so here, here's you sort of describing Honneth's work here. We say, in seminal texts like Disrespect and the Struggle for Recognition, Honneth claims um, instead that feelings of disrespect and humiliation, not economic interest, are the fundamental drive to social conflict. Hanuf uses Hegel's Lord in Bondage scenario to illustrate the tendency for dominant groups, the Lord to see the norms as natural things in themselves, whereas oppressed groups, servants, relate to the norms with a different transformative attitude that explains exclusive practices. Hanuf later argues the source of recurrent social struggles is thought to lie in the fact that any disadvantaged social group will attempt to appeal to norms that are already institutionalized, but that are being interpreted or applied in he he hegemonic ways, and to turn those norms against the dominant group by relying on them for a moral justification of their own marginalized needs and interests. Could you sort of explain that kind of dynamic or way of viewing society? And uh, Yeah, so I'll take it back if it's okay to the yeah. some of the critiques of Marxism and determinism. So the, the guy I'm writing about in this article, with um, his name is Axel Hanit, and he is 
um, a member of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. So for the the theory buffs out there, that's where he's he's at in his um, influence and like the people he's in conversation with. Um, but more importantly, he really thought Marxism was limited in some ways that are pretty common to think that it's limited. Mm-hmm. So he thought that in the first place, Marxism only saw social conflict as being relevant to human emancipation if it is over economic interests. So this is the economic determinism thing. Like mm-hmm. the only thing that motivates people to fight for emancipation is this kind of like really narrow idea of economic interest. Like how much more money can I get in my pocket at the end of every pay cycle, you know, mm-hmm. or um, what can I do to raise my standard of living? And, uh, and according to its critics, Marxism basically thinks about emancipation in these terms, which means that all of the other reasons you might fight um, for, you know, your, um, like, um, what's the word? I guess emancipation is the word. But the, the other reasons you would engage in a social movement or engage in struggle are irrelevant because they don't coincide with economic interests. Um, and this means that even if you were to achieve a classless society, a much more egalitarian society, Marxists don't have the tools to think to see why there might still be social movements under socialism. Like, why would, you know, what other kinds of conflicts that emerge and develop in a, in a democracy? And therefore, like, you know, Marxism is kind of anti-democratic because they think we would just solve all the problems in the revolution and therefore, um, you know, really like, and because the revolution didn't happen, um, at least in the way in which they hoped, it means Marxism doesn't really have anything else to, to tell us at this time. Um, clearly it's hard for people to act on their economic interests. And um, there are so many other reasons why people engage in social struggle. So really like Marxism's scope is like very narrow. And this all amounts to coming back around to your question about what's going on in that quote, a more expansive way to think about things um, is supposedly that what we're always doing is um, transforming social norms. Like this is Mm -hmm. understood as being a much more capacious, robust, um, deeper and broader way of understanding emancipation. So even workers are really just struggling against being disrespected. They're being humiliated. Mm -hmm. And so there's this like psychological motivation that drives all social struggle. It's not economic interest. It's this like um, deeper psychological drive for um, respect. And what this means is that we're always pushing up against dominant norms and we're transforming them within institutions. Um, And this all sounds, you know, really nice. Like if that's how you think about Marxism is basically telling you the only things that matter are economic interests and like wagging their fingers at women and minorities when they try to raise other concerns because those aren't the real problem and all your problems are going to get dissolved at the moment of the revolution, then this kind of perspective that Hanith is talking about is going to start being very attractive because you're like, well, yeah, like I'm, there are so many things that aren't obviously economic in nature that are the source of injustice. Um, so does that help make sense mm-hmm. of the, the paragraph? 
No, no, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 it's it's an interesting like dynamic. I, I guess it's funnier for me when I see people who are within like the the framework of like critical theory making these kind of criticisms in general against Marxism because I don't know. I, if you have like a kind of just general understanding of what Marxism is, like what you learned in high school, maybe you sort of you learn like three key words, like means of production. Maybe if you're lucky, um, you know that it's all about the economy, etc. Um, you know, which is you know a kind of zoomed out and incorrect way of looking at Marxism. Anyways, somebody within the you know within critical theory should know better. So it's very funny that these kind of dynamics are so dominant in the the criticisms of of Marxism from that that tradition. It is really dominant. Um, and I think it's not unique to that tradition, which is maybe makes it more, you know, broadly um, interesting to your audience is that when you start accusing Marxism of these kinds of um, flaws, you know, these limitations and this narrowness and, you know, kind of by implication, the only people that matter is the straight mm -hmm. male white worker, you know, like, mm -hmm. if that's how you start to carve out the tradition and like what it stands for, then there's actually a lot of things that you have to like start to ignore. So, you know, I think about Marxists in the, the Weimar Republic who were like, arguing about you know, the incommensurability of human values and their criticism of capitalism is that it was forcing us to make all of our value judgments in accordance with market imperatives. And the point was actually that real socialism would be real value pluralism. We would be able to decide, you know, distinguish between our values and what we want to accomplish um, that and not have it be dictated by these imperatives. Like the, the criticism was of the narrowness of value. It wasn't a valorization of that narrowness. The critique was of capitalism. That's what constrains our ability to um, have more expansive understandings of human value. And then there's like other stuff, you know, you think about, um, you know, um, uh, Krupskaya, you know, she was the, the Bolshevik um, feminist who wrote that um, wonderful text. I can't remember it, but it's Eros and, something it was about like what love would look like under socialism mm -hmm. and it's just this like deep craving for like love and intimacy that you could see there's like a world opening up for her and she was it wasn't like and it's like economic interest what are you talking about like people had these like worlds of possibility or you know think about someone like Franz Fanon he's like diagnosing like psychological pathologies mm -hmm. and so on so this tradition is not economistic in any normal usage of that word what did get, and I, I think that what ended up happening is that people started to attribute to Marxism the same characteristics that it was um, critiquing capitalism for creating. The problem is that capitalism is reductive. Mm. Capitalism restricts our um, the scope of possibilities. Capitalism creates norms that um, coincide with its imperatives and makes our values like it, it's like we can't even imagine having other values aside from profit maximization and utility like the marginal mm -hmm. rate of substitution you know what i'm saying so the critique is of that dynamic it's not about saying that there's there's only one interest in human emancipation it's about saying that this particular set of problems is obstructing our ability to realize human freedom that's the problem 
I mean, just like on the, like a historical example too, like it's like early Soviet union, um, you know, they call them the postcard divorces, right? You come from an extremely like patriarchal society, um, you know, and then ba basically what they, uh, you know, it was like very early Soviet union. They allowed people to essentially, they write your name and your husband's name on it and you send it in to the, you know, to the local authorities. And then that's it. You're divorced. And you're free to leave your husband, and the 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 divorce rate in in the early Soviet Union skyrocketed to like historic levels, right? And like the reason for that, um, and why that's something to celebrate is not hold oh, all these unhappy marriages. And I mean, it is to celebrate that these unhappy marriages were ending, that people had the freedom to make the decisions for themselves to leave situations that weren't good for them, right? So it's not saying that the only thing that mattered was how much people were getting paid, you know, on the shop floor. Right. Or even the ownership is like all of these other things, they sort of they build out of a, of, of a system, you know, out, out of capitalism. Right. And, and eradicating one source of, of power allows us to then confront other, um, you know, dictatorial powers in our life as well. I mean, like there's plenty of in finance and other example of, of this, too, in his writings. It's like, you know, there's something very powerful about, you know, fighting and, and breaking against colonial powers to like re-enter history, to have the freedom um, that is sort of denied to you by like this, you know, extremely oppressive system of colonialism, right? The point is like, not that like there's only one view and one truth to the world. It's rather that like there is one force that sort of dictates the way that we interact with one, with one another. And if we can eradicate that kind of power imbalance, you have really good results for the individual. And look, you know, some people stayed with their husbands, you know, and their partners that they really did love. And they had the freedom to do that as well. Right. It just, I don't know. It's like, you know, you have this kind of freedom that I think that you're so right that like a lot of people in the U S don't sort of consider that side of, of, of freedom when we're talking about individuals and, and freedom. At home. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me of like the maddest I've been in my life. <clears throat> I was working at McDonald's in high school and they had booked, uh, they had, uh, uh, had two grill guys in the back so we knew one of us was going to get home or was going to get sent home and i at this point wanted to go home i was like working five days a week and like wanted the night off and the boss instead of coming up and you usually like asked you know like if somebody wanted to go home that's like hey, i'd like it the, the other guy stay instead he comes up and he has a quarter uh in his on his thumb and he flips the coin looks at it and he's like and then he tells me sorry uh you're staying Oh, and no. I felt like this is the first time in my life I ever felt my temple like pulsing because it's like and it's not even it's not like the time and it's not the money or whatever. It's that he just did that and he decreed it and said, sorry. And like, I just had to deal with that. And that was like, that's why it's like, I don't really see a big split between this decision making and the material thing. Like when you have to like uh, accept a decision because someone's over you, that's that's really frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, and you're and there's nothing there's very little you can do to to change it i mean i was just trying to think of another example that would be um like helpful so here's another way in which people think about economic reductionism they usually say that marxists like undervalue the like the um the importance of like the law or the state um mm -hmm. in creating um and being important causal influences in their own right, but also just how important to like of like what social goods they really are. Um, and so because they're economistic, they don't appreciate how important like democratic rights are, you know, mm -hmm. and this usually reflects back on a criticism of the Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc, you know, as you can see, um, the absence of 
um, civil liberties and so on was a result of their economism. And like, here's another way to just like turn that upside down. The criticism of the capitalist state or for of political rights from a Marxist perspective, at least in my opinion, isn't that they aren't important. It's that capitalism um, makes them simultaneously accessible, you know, like you can fight for political rights. But on the other hand, it sort of devalues them mm -hmm. because the political system becomes beholden to the capitalist class in a myriad of ways, sometimes directly, sometimes through capital strikes, through dependency on them paying their taxes and so on. And so on the one hand, yeah, these rights are important, but the, the Marxist critique isn't, is that they could be more important. They could be even, they could be better if they weren't constrained by this political system that devalues them and um, is less democratic than it should be. The claim is never that there's only one um, problem to solve. Like, you know, we need dem democratic rights are less important than organizing people into trade unions or something. The argument is that there's a set of problems here, which is that political rights are devalued by the presence of this economic structure. And there is a challenge that needs to be met, which is expanding democracy. And mm -hmm. we think the economic struggle has a role in doing that. And historically, that is something labor unions have been able to do through political parties, through political pressure, and so on. So the argument is never that the ec economic interest is the only interest. It's that this social structure constrains our ability to achieve all of our other interests and all of the other things that we want that justice would require. And to me, the insight is going through the class structure. Like that's what you have to do to get those other things. You have to go through the class structure. And if you, that's the Marxist point. Mm -hmm. Our point is that you can't like go around it in some way. You have to go through it. And for some reason, this is understood to be reductionism or economism. But like, you know, I, I just, I'm, I guess I'm just kind of hoping people we'll see that it, it's a critique of economism that Marxism offers. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and because before we get to our brain genius um, in a second to close out the, the conversation, um, I think that you, you sort of hit on it here in these last few paragraphs of the piece, right? Um, when you're talking about, um, I don't know, norms, and 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 well, let me just read it because I think it's good for people who are listening. Um, what distinguishes historical materialism is, is its strong commitment to facilitating a better understanding of the historically specific conditions of political economy that generate equally specific constraints on self-determination or domination that pervade and inhibit emancipatory struggles of all kinds. A pragmatic historical materialism may also illuminate normative complexity in a way that an all-encompassing theory of recognition cannot. It would investigate um, investigate how people, especially those subject to domination, engage norms to confront constraints. People with few choices, this is important, people with few choices often navigate them using the justifications available, which cannot be exactly the same thing as sharing values and ideals. Um, the same is true of the other side too. Historical materialism permits a healthy skepticism that, for instance, members of the capitalist class really share an ideal of democratic freedom. 
perhaps they justify their behavior in its name or their concessions to democracy are more conjectural um, than they are fixed. Mm -hmm. It is not as though the capitalist bankers and financiers of this world engage in class conflict for lack of social respect. I, I think I think that like you know, looking at this kind of deeper understanding that you get from historical materialism for like the norms in society, the way that people sort of justify their actions, and also understanding, I don't know, here you're sort of getting at to the fact that like we we can make choices, et cetera, but like we're there are limitations that are sort of put onto us by like the economic structure, correct? Yeah, I mean, so think about Matt's example. Um about not being able to go home and the mm -hmm. boss arbitrarily deciding that for him, like that might be humiliating or it might cause resentment or a deep sense of unfairness. I think what, um, and I, so I, th I think in that sense, like this other view that I'm critiquing in the article, you know, it has something right. There is something about like an experience of, of suffering or mm -hmm. something that isn't like, um, you know, it's not just like, yes, my economic interest is to fight my boss. What I'm trying to suggest is that that might be true and that isn't going to tell Matt what he needs to do to change that situation. Mm -hmm. It's not going to make you mm -hmm. jump to the conclusion that the obvious thing you should do is organize with your coworkers. There might be really good reason that, reasons that you don't want to do that. And what historical materialism is able to communicate or you know, at its best is able to communicate is given that I already know something is unjust, it makes me angry, it makes me resentful, resentful, it makes me feel like it's unfair, it makes me feel disrespected. Then what do I do? What is confront? What are the obstacles to me reversing that situation? And the view that I'm critiquing in the um, paper, I don't think it has much to say about that. Yeah. Like, clearly, there is something standing in the way of us challenging the dominant norms of our society. And people, like plenty of people hate their boss. Pen plenty of people feel disrespected on a daily basis in our society for all kinds of reasons. And it doesn't lead them to, to have any specific conclusions about what to do about it. And there's a bunch of ways they handle those problems that mm. aren't necessarily going to aggregate to being like a structural attack on the system. And so there's, a, there's another level here that I that I try to introduce, which is, I think you could sum it up as like, if you're going to do a critical theory, or you're going to engage in theory, and you want to have like a, um, you know, a critique of society, I guess, one task that you should be preoccupied with is like, thinking about the strategic questions at a pretty high level of abstraction, like, mm -hmm. you should be thinking about what is inhibiting people from flourishing. And then also, what is inhibiting people from making effective political de demands of having the capacity to, to change it. And so it's not enough to just point out that something is unjust and that somebody is suffering. You have to have something else to say. And that's not going to mm. answer everyone's questions about the all of the myriad injustices that happen in the world. But it is a distinct contribution that Marxism makes, that historical materialism makes. And the point isn't to say that there are no other problems. It's to say that if you want to address these other problems, you have to confront this one. Um, so that's how I would try to sum it up. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I mean, it's like, yeah. 
I don't know. We all have a lot of different kind of identities, some of them more reasonable than others, right? And, and the hope of like Marxism and, and, and this way of thinking is that being a worker, being a, you know, a working person is something that can sort of transcend it, right? You know, like I'm big Texas Longhorn fans, people a few hours away from here, big Oklahoma fans. And there's a lot that we disagree with, you know, very passionately about, um, but we probably all share a kind of common denominator and, and hope that uh, you know, if we are to link up, we can do, you know, we can sort of break through the cycle before we, we've gone on for That's a little one bit. way of putting it, David. No, no, I'm sorry. I mean, like, no, no, I mean, like for real, it's like utopia. This, like, yeah. We have like, <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is my pitch to our friends uh, from across the red river. Um, <laughs> but, but while we have you here and I, I hate to do this to you because this was a really elevated conversation. I do have to bring in the perspective of a world level, level expert on critical theory to stand up for some of these a, ideas, right? A leader in concepts. A leader in concepts. Um, because the thing that it, we're going to talk about James Lindsay for just a moment, just because it is funny to, you know, to talk with Lillian here, um, you know, somebody who's spending a lot of time like engaged deeply in these debates with folks coming from different traditions, right? And, you know, some of the traditions, you know, that she's sort of pushing back against here are like very Hegelian influenced, right? Um, and to sit here in the way that, that James talks about Hegel, I think might be a little baffling um, as a Marxist uh, to, to see. But let's, let's bring up a couple of quotes of his to see how, um, how you feel. The leader of the Canton, how his, whether I agree with his interpretation of the leader of the cancel well, culture. It would be amazing if you could figure out what his interpretation is in the first place. Um, yeah, we're going to do some vetting. We'll do some vetting, vetting here. But this is the... Um, Ooh, which one to start with? Because they're all good. Okay, let's start here because this is the the secret cheat code that James Lindsay feels like he has discovered um, into to leftist thinking, which is that it all goes back to Hegel and Hegel sort of secretly running things from behind the scenes. Um, the woke gets surprisingly pissed off when linked to Hegel, almost like it pulls back a curtain they don't want pulled back. Since they react in opposing directions, I have to assume it's straight on the target. Yes, a the way to say it. Uh, would be that Marx did a Fourier uh, transform on Hegel and Gramsci did the inverse Fourier transform on Marx. That set up a Mao, a Leninist, to adapt a model of cultural Marxism that's now been repurposed through identity politics for the West. The two operations together removed the Geist, or at least hid it from view while retaining every other essential characteristic so it doesn't look religious, but is. Do you think this is accurate to the history of, I don't know, Western philosophy and specifically Marxism? Okay, I have to be honest with you that like you read that middle paragraph so quickly that I like couldn't actually oh, absorb all of the really important thoughts he had. I won't, um, I won't make you uh, miss out on that. Yeah, I might need to bust out in bullet points. Fourier transform, inverse Fourier transform, Mao, Lenin, cultural Marxism. Okay, got it. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That, I mean, the crazy thing is that like Hegel is like not a radical dude, you know. I mean, I, I, to be to be fair, I think that there are some, you know, some of my good friends are Hegelians. Um, they are not like, you know, um, super conservative people, but like mm -hmm. Hegel was like into the monarchy. So the whole thing is just, I'm a um. I'm a little, I'm a little perplexed that they have drawn Hegel. Lenin, I understand. Mao, I understand. But, um, but do you feel like Lenin with cultural revolution uh, as a concept? I feel like it's a little wild, personally. But no, I mean, I. 
No, I mean, I, I don't see like, how it scares conservatives. Right. Lenin and Mao are very scary to conservatives, absolutely. I just I understand why those figures would enter, but I really feel like um, it's kind of like James Lindsay like waded out of his depth, and he was just like, "Wow, there is this like secret world of philosophy that conservatives need to know about." <laughs> like, did you know that the whole Western canon is actually secretly Marxist? These unknown figures like Kant and Hegel, they have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't like the thing about Hegel, like, isn't Trump kind of like a Hegelian great man sort of figure? Like, Wait, what? There, there was a video that like, one of my friends <laughs> world my spirit. He thing. thinks the world spirit is expressing yeah. itself through him. Is that? Have well, that's that that's what I would argue. If, if I was a Hegelian all of a sudden. There is a video of a guy. I can't remember who it is. Um, so I don't want to say anything out Un, uh, incorrect about them, but there's a video of somebody like freaking out at Times Square about Hegel and and Trump after he got elected. I'll have to find that video later because it's very very wild. Um, but if I remember correctly, they might have some sort of unsavory connections. But anyways, like that was the closest I've ever seen to anybody like seriously trying to I don't know tie Trump to to Hegel. But it is I don't know. Um, it you is. It is pretty... like Charlie Kirk brought up Hegel too in the Ben Burgess debate. Like, I think that's Hegel's just the new one. Did. Yeah. I, 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 I see. He was like, we can talk about Hegel. We can talk about the phenomenology of spirit. And I remember, I think Ben Burgess was like, that's not where I thought you were going to go with that. But uh, I, exactly. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. Also, like Ben is not somebody who you're going to like. Ben knows that stuff very well. But Ben is not somebody who's going to be like, that's exactly what I believe. I, you know, Ben is a very analytic guy. <laughs> that's what I meant. I meant I did. I meant that you didn't. I meant the dialectic. That's where I was driving this conversation the whole, the whole time. It's just the, the realization of the world spirit culminating in the self knowledge of God. That's where this was all going. Never mind my Christopher Hitch Hitchens book. Never mind my atheist <laughs> one. I was actually trying to get us there. So this is a top ten for me. Um, because this is a this is a big brain one too. Uh, Black Lives Matter is a Hegelian neo-Marxist dialectic meant to negate all lives matter. In essence, all men are created equal. The synthesis, their goal is some politically black lives matter more than others, and there's intersectional hierarchy of mattering. Hmm. This one triggered them, and that's my favorite thing about um, James. Is like he proceeds to like go on and say something extremely obtuse and stupid. People call him obtuse and stupid, and he's like triggered much. Uh, this is his big response. There, I have two questions to, to ask. One. I feel like it's probably I unfair. I am triggered. Yes, I'm triggered. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only thing, so one, the Hegelian neo-Marxist kind of formation, I think, is is, is a wild one because this is just not groups of people who like typically get along. Again, I also would be curious to know who the neo-Marxists are. Mm -hmm. The second bit, the only thing that James Lindsay has got under his belt, I think, at this point, is as he says, he has spent around twelve hours a day for the past four years reading the necessary literature to become a world expert on critical theory, Marxism, and Hegel. Um, the only thing that, that I feel like he's picked, yes, he did. Oh, I should have had this clip for you if you haven't, man. You could do some deep dives. Um, <laughs> uh, he's also in, uh, he he did like a panel for like New Hampshire, like the New Hampshire State Legislature, and insisted that they call him Doctor. 
the whole time. Um, but his doctorate magician. is in mathematics, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. So, yeah, he, I was like, he is like an acad- like he was an acad- academic in some so way. His no? thing is like he tried to get into the new atheism stuff, um, but he was late to the party. Like it was oh, sort yeah. of when that was fizzling out a little bit. So he tried to get into like the Hitchens, Harris kind of, of world for a little while, but it didn't really work out. And as Matt points out, like this was sort of the only thing that was left for him. It was just like super hyper reactionary. Um, grievance you know, study bullshit. Grievance study BS. Uh, <laughs> but the one thing though, in all of this time, I have to say that he has picked up is he has picked up a kind of impenetrable writing style. Like <laughs> the the brackets there. I mean, there is a part of me that's like, you know, I don't really understand the arguments that you're making at all, but I do recognize the the kind Impenetrable of language. Language. I want people to understand what you're actually saying. I mean, this is the first thing that we try to communicate to students is please don't write like the philosophers <laughs> that you are reading. <laughs> please stop. <laughs> yeah i mean that's the thing is like he may that that's him marketing himself to right-wing funders when he says i'm this expert on this stuff like there's a number of podcasts i don't speak germans one where they've done very like deep dives into his grievance study stuff and it's really very thin <laughs> like he doesn't really i mean maybe maybe he's been doing the work lately but like back when he like first landed on the scene he didn't know jack about any of this stuff beyond like a paper thin way to make fun of it the thing is that he, what he tries to do is he tries to make like all these competing like theories and, and, and ways of thinking about the world, at, you know, make them appear as if they're all sort of in like one united front. I mean, like, you know, Marxists have like serious criticisms of like CRT and like, you know, 1619 projects, etc. Right. So to act like this is all some kind of secret plot, like we got together in like the 1970s and said, you know what, what we're going to do is we're going to hide the class struggle stuff and just like focus up on identity politics is absolutely wild. And like, I don't know, he just sort of mashes together a bunch of like incongruent political and, and theoretical movements together to appear to his his base of just like really, really angry young guys from Delaware. Um I mean, why do you think it like seems coherent to him? Because like, if you're familiar with these debates, like at all, then like, you know, that first of all, these people, I mean, not the, the Frankfurt school is actually, you know, Marxist adjacent. So that, mm-hmm. that part is like somewhat fair, but like, if you, not the cultural Marxism, yeah, yeah, yeah. To be clear. I just mean like there it's Marxist adjacent. So like drawing connections there, like is fair game for how to interpret right. it. Like if you're being, if you're like an honest person Mm -hmm. but like i just don't quite understand where like what's driving all of this mishmash of connections like he seems to just want to find marxism everywhere in the academy and like i just i genuinely wish it was true like (laughs) but it's not true you you know and and i don't know what to do because like if it were true i'd be like you know, hell yeah, brah. No problem. No, I, mean, like the, I mean, the point is, is that like, as you're saying, you know, within Frankfurt School and like critical theories, like, you know, there is like some form of a historical line there. But the point is that the, functionally, like there's a break, right, from from Marxism, right? Like, you know, the, like the, the problem with like, the, you know, the Frankfurt School is that it's sort of like, I don't know, slowly starts to shed. It's like Marxist skin. Um, and, you know, and fixate like solely on culture. Like, so it is true that there was a cultural turn in like a lot of like academics who you know, were Marxists, but not in the sense that they were trying to return, you know, to basically hide like the true Marxism underneath it is because they were actually rejecting some kind of fundamental truths of like, you know, historical materialism and, and class struggle, etc. 
you know, if I were going to be like, far be it for me to say this, but if I was going to be sympathetic and just say yeah. like, you are not super like, you don't have a lot of guidance in reading mm -hmm. these texts. Like, let's put it that way. Um, and like, you're looking at all this stuff and it does seem, I think sometimes that like these trajectories are kind of linear. Like, you know, you have the Marxists yeah. and the second international and then the Frankfurt school is criticizing them and kind of having their breaking in their own direction. And then the new left is kind of inheriting like some of the ways that Marxists thought about class. And then they're, you know, breaking off to talk about race and gender and sexuality and other things. And then like, there is an ongoing discourse with Marxism, like that exists. And if you're actually an honest interlocutor, I would say like, I can understand like, that that can be a little confusing mm -hmm. because all of these people actually really disagree with Marxism. And like the big question is like, why does Marxism haunt the social sciences in this way? Like, why don't you let it go if you don't agree with it this much? Um, and so there is kind of like a weird reference to Marxism that, but you also just have to like not pay attention to the argument. I mean, in all seriousness, you just have to not pay attention to the actual arguments that are being had to like do what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, obviously it's like very, obviously it's super willful what he's doing, but I, mm -hmm. there is like, I think the problem with like right wing, like lunatics like this is that there is like something behind there. And so that's why you have those gotcha moments where he's like, see, gotcha. They're, they really, yeah. they really all are, you know, and it's like a self-perpetuating little intellectual world. Yeah, I mean, this is you see this a lot with Jordan Peterson too, and it's like if like when Jordan Peterson comments on John Milton, for instance, it's impressive to everyone there because they haven't read John Milton. So when Jordan Peterson says like what John Milton is saying is clean your room and before you go try to fix the world, right? He like he he makes it, and like I think like what James Lindsay is doing is similar. It's like what he's selling isn't like actual understanding of this stuff to folks. He's selling the idea that he's been through enemy territory and mm -hmm. or Indian territory is what we call it here in America. Right. Like he's that's, that's his sort of, he's like Daniel Boone or something. Right. And like, I've been there and I know everything they can throw at you and follow me to the promised land. I think that's really the message behind. I him. think that's right. He has been in the trenches. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's For right. 14 hours a day for four years. Well, <laughs> I, I appreciate you, you know, and honestly, it it only shows why people should be following uh, Lillian's work wherever you can, uh, wherever you can find it, because you do try to deal with people even when you're critiquing them in the fairest way possible, right? And, and uh, you know, even folks like James Lindsay, who are just complete charlatans. Um, I'll plug our Hegel app for people. We do have a Hegel app and we... Um made some pretty strong arguments that Hegel was inherently conservative. So if people are interested in the Covering Hegel the conversation, they can join, join us. No, people should definitely be listening to what's left of philosophy. And we'll, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes uh, to that, that episode where people can find it. We actually have, sorry, I'm going to, yeah, James yeah. Lindsay is actually the, we used him as like, we have like a little quote at the beginning of every episode. And he, when he said there is a straight line from Hegel to woke and it runs through <laughs> Alf Haven. We actually use that to start our episode. So, so very relevant. <laughs> we heard it here, folks. Um, thanks again, Lillian, for hanging out with us and hope to do this. Thanks, again soon. Thanks, Lillian.